I learned from the great David Gordon to always begin with a joke. So this is a joke about mainstream economics. A physicist, an engineer, and an economist were stranded on an island. And uh, a can of, of food washed up on shore. And so they were debating on the best way to open up this can so that they could enjoy the, the inside, so that they could have some nourishment. So the physicist said that we should take this can up to this cliff over here and drop it. And the force of the impact at the bottom of the cliff would force the, the can open and then we can eat the food. You know, it might be a little dirty, but at least we would get the can open. The engineer, or the chemist, chemical engineer maybe, says, no, we should put this over fire and pressure will build up on the inside of the can and the can will just pop open. And so both of them look to the economist for an answer and the economist sits and thinks for a moment and says, First, let's assume that we have a can opener. <laughs> so this gets at uh, one crucial problem with mainstream economics, and that is you know, the unrealistic assumptions that are, that are used, and we'll talk about, that, talk about that a little bit in this talk. So over the uh, yesterday and uh, this morning, hopefully you've, you've seen that there are these two, two sort of uh, branches in economics. So there are the things that you're learning this week, which belong to the Austrian school of thought. And then there's everybody else, and we sort of call that uh, mainstream economics. There are some other heterodox theories, but uh, we don't really have uh, a lot of uh, focus on them. <clears throat> but the, the Austrian school of economics presents a, a wide range of ideas that are different from the, from the mainstream. And that's what we're going to focus on in this talk. We're going to focus on these specific differences between the Austrian school or the causal realist tradition and uh, the mainstream. The, the first uh, problem that we have to solve is defining what the mainstream is. And I think to do that, we have to go back a little bit in the history of economic thought. So in classical economics, the greatest insights were ones where marginalism and subjectivism were discovered or injected uh, in economics. So the, some of the greatest insights th up through the classical uh, economic period and up to the marginalist revolution were the ones where uh, the economists realized, you know, people make decisions on the margin. Uh, that really happened in full during the marginalist revolution, but also where the economists were realizing that uh, preferences are subjective, that um, all, of the, all of, the, of the action and the choosing happens inside uh, people's minds. In the marginalist revolution, uh, we had uh, Jevons, Valras, and Menger who independently came up with this idea of, of uh, marginal utility. However, there were some differences between them, uh, as you, you may have heard in Salerno's lecture earlier. Uh, Menger kept with this subjectivist tradition. So he, he, he discovered that, that people make decisions on the margin, and this helps solve some paradoxes of value, solve some, some problems that existed for the classical economists. However, Jevons and Volross used a different sort of method. They, they came about this marginal utility idea from a, in a different way. They, they thought of utility as this you know, mathematical function, and then we can take a derivative of it. And so that's, that's what marginal utility is. It's just this first derivative of a utility function. Since then, uh, there have been these two branches. So following Menger, there, were, uh, there was uh, Bumbavirk, Menger, excuse me, uh, Bumbavirk, Mises, Hayek, and Rothbard, who were developing the ideas of Menger and continuing this pattern, all, going all the way back to the classical uh, economists of finding, discovering marginalism and subjectivism in economics. However, there's been this other branch that has continued the, the thought of Jevons and Valras, where we use math to describe people's choices. There was also a big turning point in the middle of the 20th century where empiricism and posit positivism uh, became very popular in economics. So where we have this idea that we can test economic theory 
And so we, we come up with these mathematical models and then we plug in some data into these mathematical models and see if they're uh, correct or not. And so this would be like Friedmanite positivism and all of the work of Paul Samuelson uh, would, would go into this uh, sort of turning point or this extra layer of, of math on top of what we call the mainstream today. So uh, in conclusion, with this buildup of defining what mainstream economics is, we don't have just one big mainstream economics. There's really not just one mainstream that's, you know, our group of enemies. They, they have splintered off. There are a bunch of different, very specialized fields. So we have labor economics, health economics, environmental economics, and they're all seeking to solve problems in their specific fields using different mathematical models, using different uh, types of regressions uh, in econometrics, using very different ideas. And there's an even bigger gap between mainstream microeconomics and mainstream macroeconomics. And in fact, the, the faculty members in economics departments across uh, the United States are often very divided and don't really like each other sometimes. I've heard some, uh, some people at, uh, at Auburn say that they're jealous that the macroeconomists get all the funding because they get the bigger computers to, to, to do these big, huge simulations of the entire macroeconomy. So that's going to be the focus of, uh, of my talk today. I've, I've outlined it in a purposeful way. So there's not just one mainstream economics, there's mainstream micro, mainstream macro, and uh, methods that they use uh, in application in econometrics. And so that's why I've organized it uh, in this way. So let's start off with uh, mainstream, oh, let's, excuse me, let's start off with uh, some essential reading, some things that I think uh, you should read if you're interested in this topic. Uh, sometimes people put this in, in the, at the end of their presentation. I think it's important to go over it at the beginning. So uh, first on this list, we have the very pivotal work uh, by Murray Rothbard toward a reconstruction of utility and welfare economics. And here he's trying to bring back subjectivism, bring back ordinal utility. Uh, and he shows that you can still talk about utility economics and welfare economics using certain principles and going back to subjectivism. So you, we don't have to think of uh, people's decisions as as you know, maximizing utility subject to a budget constraint, we can still talk about uh, utility uh, and increases in social welfare using what's called the unanimity principle. So something like voluntary exchange, if both people uh, in an exchange voluntarily go through with this exchange, we can say that welfare has increased for both of those people or else they would not have gone through uh, the exchange in the first place. So that's um, a, a great work. Uh, Roderick Long's paper, Realism and Abstraction in Economics, Aristotle and Mises versus Friedman, is, I think, very underrated. This is a great paper that shows some of the flaws in uh, Friedmanite positivism. Specifically, he, he points out that in mainstream economics, they use uh, precisive abstractions. So they specify that certain things are absent in their models. So they, in their utility functions, they say that people want to maximize the utility and so they'll consume these different bundles of goods and that's what determines their behavior and they specify as absent all these other things that could possibly affect some consumers' uh, decision to purchase a, a particular bundle. So they specify that those things are absent, meaning so if somebody has, you know, irrational preferences or, you know, if there's cultural differences or anything else, you know, frictions in the economy that's causing people to act differently than what the utility function uh, suggests, then that means that these mainstream models are at a loss to explain. So they, because they specified those, those things as absent, then their models aren't predicting 
consumer behavior correctly. However, in the Austrian framework, we make non-precisive abstractions. So we don't specify things as absent, but certain things are absent from our specification. So we, we make claims that you know, certain things don't matter. Economic theory is correct, so we have diminishing margin utility no matter what the color of the good is, no matter what the culture of uh, the person who's, who's purchasing goods, no matter what culture they belong to, what country, what year they exist in, all of these things are time invariant. And so the, sort of the particulars of action are, are absent from specification. So we, we don't need to use these sorts of things to explain behavior. All of these things are considered by the individual in their, in their preferences. And so that's how we incorporate those, those particulars. Um, I, I will touch on uh, some macro. I'm not sure how much time we'll have to get to macro and econometrics, but uh, if you're interested in some of the failures of Keynesianism uh, and the errors in Keynesianism, you should check out Henry Hazlitt's Failure of the New Economics. So here, that's a line-by-line -line refutation of uh, Keynes' general theory. Excellent work. In, uh, in talking about the use of mathematics in economics, uh, this page range that I've, I've given you here in uh, Human Action is, is an excellent source. <clears throat> Hans Hoppe's uh, paper in The Economics and Ethics of Private Property uh, called Is Research Based on Causal Scientific Principles Possible in the Social Sciences is an excellent work to go to if you're interested in uh, what's wrong with econometrics. Why can't we use econometrics to explain and predict uh, human uh, behavior? And he goes through this idea called the constancy principle. Uh, he shows, and this is important, I think, and this is neglected even in Austrian circles, he shows that there is an innocuous way to interpret econometric results. So we can use econometrics, we just have to make sure that we're interpreting the results in, in a correct way. So we have to make sure that we're not assuming that people will always act in a certain way. If we find some sort of statistical correlation for a certain time period, that's all we've done. We've just found a statistical correlation for a certain time period. Now, how relevant that is, how important or interesting that is, just depends on what sort of question you're trying to answer. So we shouldn't say that all econometrics is bad, all statistics is bad. We should just keep to these innocuous, non-causal interpretations of, of statistical results. Finally, this has not been published yet, but uh, Professor Herbener has given a talk at a recent AERC on, on uh, time and the theory of costs, and so I, I highly recommend watching this uh, lecture and uh, reading his his article when it's, it's published in in uh, Matt McCaffrey's uh, book that he's editing, The Economic Theory of Costs, Foundations and New Directions. Here he's shown how we can keep the apparatus of cost curves by, you know, like I said before, maintaining this pattern of, of keeping with subjectivism and marginalism, and also specifically realizing that entrepreneurs are making decisions over a relevant unit. And so in cost curves, there's, there's all of these issues with using the technical unit and, and keeping factor prices constant. So I, I highly recommend checking out his paper when it's published in, in the, his lecture earlier, if you're interested in cost curves. So now let's, let's talk about some mainstream micro. This is often called neoclassical microeconomics, utility, welfare analysis in, uh, in uh, Rothbard's work. <clears throat> the, in, in mainstream microeconomics, uh, individual agents select bundles of goods to consume uh, to maximize their utility. And their utility is given by a utility function. So they assign this index, they assign a number to an, this individual agent's utility. So we already see a big difference between the way Austrians, uh, or the way causal realist economists uh, see people making decisions and the way mainstream economists see people making decisions. So here, I, I give you an example. This is one example of a, uh, a utility function. This is a Cobb-Douglas one. So <clears throat> here, this is 
one agent's utility, total utility, and it's a function of their consumption of good X and their consumption of good Y. And so they consume a specific bundle, a certain combination of these two goods, and the utility that they get from consuming this bundle is given by this mathematical function. So in the Cobb-Douglas form, it's X to the alpha times Y to the beta. Usually uh, the alpha and beta add up to one. Their choices uh, are constrained by a budget, so they have income and they would like for their income to be uh, greater than or equal to their total expenditures. If you use all of your income, then it's equal. So we have the price of the good times the good plus the price of the other good times that good. So if you spend all of your income, then the total income equals your total expenditure on those goods. So this is the quantity times the, the price of that good. And so agents uh, solve a constrained optimization problem. They maximize utility constrained by a budget. And the way that looks here is, is with uh, indifference curves. So here they, we have a given level of utility. So suppose we, suppose we fix on this left-hand side of the equation uh, that utility will be equal to 100. What combinations of X and Y can this agent consume such that they keep the same level of utility? And the result of that is we get an indifference curve. So all of these possible bundles, so we have this in this picture that I got from Google, we have A, B, and C. And all of these uh, bundles of goods, the, the agent's utility is the same. So even, even though we have a different number of, in this example, shakes and pizza, compared to this bundle over here, this is a different combination of shakes and pizza. And this one is also different. Here there's more shakes than there are pizza. As we move along this indifference curve, utility is remaining constant. The, this, this function is returning the same value. And so the way, uh, we would have to increase utility. So suppose we increase consumption of both of these goods. It means that we'd have to move to a new indifference curve. So we would have a this this D over here. This uh, consumption bundle would be on a different indifference curve where the utility is greater than 100. Likewise, here E utility would be less than 100. That would be on a different indifference curve. So the the agent's problem here looks like this. They they find this is their budget constraint here. So these are their feasible consumption. Uh, combinations here. So this person here could consume at C or at A or at B. However, if this person consumed at C or B, it means that they, they're, they're not maximizing utility because both C and B are at a utility level of 75. But however, they could increase uh, their utility by consuming at A. So this is at utility of 100. And it happens to be where that indifference curve is tangent to the, to the budget constraint. So Let's contrast this presentation of the way consumers make choices to the way uh, we conceive of people making choices in, in causal realist economics. So in causal realist economics, individuals act to bring about a preferred state. So we have, all, we have our circumstances, we have our environment, we have the goods that we can consume and we can use for production, and we, we act to bring about a preferred state. So we forego uh, lesser ranked ends, we forego states of the world where we don't anticipate to be as happy or as satisfied, and we shoot for, we attain for, our goal is to achieve a preferred state. So <clears throat> preference can only be demonstrated by action in causal realist economics, which, which means that there's no such thing as indifference in causal realist economics. There's no way to demonstrate indifference in, in the Austrian framework. There's no way to there's no way to look at somebody and see, oh, they, they must be indifferent. So one, uh, actually, I'll save that for the next slide. So we'll talk about indifference a little bit more later. 
Also in causal realist economics, action is the use of means for purpose, the attainment of an end. In action, less important ends are foregone to attain more important ends. And this is all we can say about the individual's wants. So wants are ordinal, not cardinal. We can't even, we can't assign arbitrary numbers. We can't assign an index. That, that would just meaningless. So we, we achieve a, a certain end, and this is a, based on a qualitative judgment by the, by the actor. So I, I perceive that I would be happier if I choose this end as opposed to this end. And so it's, it's all qualitative as opposed to quantitative. There are, there are quantities involved, so I will, I will consume a certain number of goods. However, the ends that I'm seeking to attain, the state of the world that I'm seeking to attain, is, a, is a, based on a qualitative judgment that I make. <clears throat> okay. So let's make some immediate observations based on the differences, uh, based on having both of these in view. The two approaches are answering totally different questions. So they're really, a lot of times, mainstreamers and Austrians will talk past each other because the goals of their sciences are totally different. So in the mainstream, uh, they seek to model behavior to make good predictions. So their goal is to predict human behavior. So they, they come up with this mathematical model in such a way as to be able to say, if this person has this income and faces these prices, then they, they would consume this bundle. So it's, it's all to, to make predictions. However, in the causal realist framework, uh, our goal is to explain and understand real-world phenomena, real-world choices that real human beings make. So there's this big difference between trying to predict people's choices and trying to understand the way people make choices, not necessarily the particulars, but the implications of the fact that we do make choices and the, the fact that we can you know, encounter each other in markets and all that sort of stuff. All of the whole body of causal realist economic theory is based on those implications of the sort of invariable axioms of, of action. Um, consumer behavior is explained in very different ways. So in the mainstream, consumers use, or I should say they act as if they use math to make decisions. Th this is what they would say. So. Uh, mainstream economists wouldn't say that people actually, as they're walking through a grocery store, they're taking derivatives of utility functions. <laughs> they, they wouldn't say that. So that's, that would be a bad uh, you know, charge against them. What they would say is that people act as if they do that. So this is a very Friedmanite uh, thing to say. So it's, it helps us explain what choices people actually do make, and it helps us you know, predict to, to conceive of choices that way. And so I have you know, this great meme here. So, we have two people in a room. It looks like they're in the middle of a move. And so the husband asks his wife, should we have kids? And the wife says, let's consult our family utility function. So they do a, they do a bunch of math here, numbers going through their head. And they, they plug in the, the numbers into their, their big, long family utility function. And then out pops, you know, some kids. You know, so it, it's very timeless. You know, there's no, there's no time. There's no, you know, delib deliberation except for, you know, doing some numbers. This, this is a straw man, um, as uh, Joachim told me before. But it's still funny nonetheless. <laughs> okay, so... Um, in causal realist uh, economics, consumers make qualitative judgments, as we talked about before. Also, the elements are conceived in very different ways. So in the mainstream, uh, we have continuous goods. So if people can buy, you know, one and a half milkshakes or 1.2169 tacos, you know, 
And so in order for the math to work out, those, those indifference curves and the utility functions have to be differentiable. You have to be able to take a, a derivative at each possible combination uh, so that you can find tangent lines and optimal points. And so what that means is the implication is that the goods are continuous that, that uh, people are consuming. However, in causal realist economics, obviously the goods that we consume are discrete. You don't, you don't choose to purchase one and a half tacos or one and a half shakes. You know, you can purchase, you know, one shake or two shakes. So we have these discrete steps of goods that we can consume. And also the, 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 the relevant unit for action and for production is based on what, what we perceive as uh, possible for the attainment of our ends. So we have these, these discrete relevant units for action and they're uh, not continuous. Also, in terms of uh, the agent's purposes, so in the mainstream, the continuous goods are consumed to achieve a certain level of utility. We could use that sort of language. Um, however, we would say that the, the consumption of goods, the choice of goods, is to attain a certain end. And this, we would say that the attainment of that end and its relative position to other ends on our preference ranking, that is what our uh, utility is. Uh, this is a, a big problem for mainstream economics, this, ne this next one. The scope of the consumer's knowledge is very different. So in the mainstream, the consumer knows and considers all possible bundles. They have to, they have to know and, and think about all of the possible things that they could consume. Whereas in causal realist economics, the consumer only necessarily considers the end attained and the highest ranked end foregone. So we don't have to think about, we don't have to compare if we walk into a grocery store, uh, and we're putting things in our buggy, we don't have to think about, do I purchase you know, two pounds of bananas, 16 ounces of beef, and two boxes of cereal, or do I consume, or, or put in my buggy, you know, 12 pounds of bananas, and 19 ounces of meat, and 16 boxes of cereal. So we don't make decisions like that. We don't rule out all of these other possible combinations. And, and instead, we, you know, we, we make these decisions on their own. So we decide, okay, how many bananas do I wanna purchase at this price? What, how is the price and that I would have to pay and the number of bananas that, I'm, that I would like to buy, how, how are those ranked on my preference ranking? <clears throat> Let me, this is an important point, so let's go back to this indifference curve. You notice that here, to, for the consumer to arrive at this consumption bundle, they have to rule out all of the other feasible combinations and all of the, the possible unfeasible, excuse me, the unfeasible combinations here. So the consumer knows and thinks about all of these uh, bundles that they, can't consume and also knows about all the things that they could possibly purchase and they isolate, they come down to this one optimal consumption bundle. And so the scope of the consumer's knowledge in, in between these two, uh, these two fields is very different. <clears throat> okay, so let's point out some problems with this uh, mainstream approach. So obviously indifference is a problem it's all, all of the consumer behavior is based on indifference and based on finding this, this one bundle on an indifference curve that's feasible, and we find the highest indifference curve. And Rothbard made, made this great point in his uh, Twitter reconstruction of utility and welfare economics that indifference cannot be demonstrated by action. So there's this thought experiment in economics called Buridan's ass. So there's this donkey that's faced with two uh, equidistant and perfectly identical hay bales or oases where the donkey could take a drink. And according to uh, mainstream neoclassical microeconomics, this donkey wouldn't be able to make a choice. The donkey would just sit there and starve and, or die of thirst. You know, faced with these two perfectly identical uh, options, and the donkey is 
is indifferent between them, then the Nagi would just starve. Rothbard, you know, makes this very simple but very powerful uh, point that no, if the donkey were just going to sit there and starve, it means that he's demonstrating a preference for sitting there and starving. So the, the donkey faces this other option of, you know, starving to death. And obviously the donkey would choose, you know, based on spontaneity, some sort of, you know, random, you know, flip a coin or eeny, meeny, miny, mo to pick one or the other, because the other option that neoclassical uh, economists don't take into consideration is sitting there and starving uh, to death. So indifference is, is an issue. There's, there's no indifference in, in real human action. There's also a violation of Occam's razor in mainstream uh, microeconomics. So why go through with these unnecessary complications? Um, <clears throat> Rothbard says in, in that same essay, simply to translate economic analysis from words into symbols and then to retranslate them so as to explain conclusion makes little sense and violates the great scientific principle of Occam's razor that there should be no unnecessary multiplication of entries. So why go through with these unnecessary complications? Well, the answer is so that they can come up with this mathematical model that they can plug in data that they can use to try to predict behavior. Nevertheless, it violates Occam's razor that we should you know, keep things simple. Uh, there's also no regard for the boundaries of economics. So we, under, Austrians in, in general, are very good about knowing where the boundaries of economics are. So we know how far our science can go. We know how far logical deduction can take us. We know, we know exactly what sort of claims we can make, what sort of causal claims that we can make in economics. And we know where to stop. We know where economic theory stops in terms of explaining behavior. So we can't use economic theory to explain the particulars we can't use economic theory to explain uh, the uh, specific motivations of actors. That's beyond the scope of what economic theory allows us to do. Th now, those questions might be interesting. However, you would have to go into a different science to discuss that. You'd have to go into psychology, history, uh, thymology to discuss these particulars. <clears throat> There's uh, this huge uh, rationality assumption for consumers in mainstream uh, microeconomics. So they have, actors have transitivity and completeness. So completeness meaning that they consider all possible alternative bundles that they could consume. And uh, there's also the transitivity, which says that if A is preferred to B and B is preferred to C, then that means A must be preferred to C. However, there's an, an easy um, uh, way to point or to a fallacy in that logic. And that is with imperceptible differences. So it seems to me it's pretty hot in here but if there were just a one half of a degree difference between our current temperature and, and another possible temperature, we would, if it's imperceptible, then we would be indifferent between them. So we can't really choose over imperceptible differences. And so if we're indifferent between a 70 degree room and a 70.5 degree room and a 70.5 degree room and a, a 71 degree room and so on and so forth, by transitivity, that would mean that we're indifferent between, we couldn't choose between a 70 degree room and a 120 degree room. So obviously there's, there's flaws in, in the transitivity. <clears throat> and uh, so the way uh, the mainstream economists get around that is by just excluding them from their analysis. So if people s seem to show irrational uh, behavior, then they just exclude them. So we just take them out of our analysis. <clears throat> Uh, another big problem with the mainstream approach is that there's no way to, uh, they, they don't, um, they don't have diminishing margin utility by necessity. So there's, there are ways to configure um, utility functions such that the 
positive, excuse me, the first derivative is positive, such that, you know, we can have upward sloping demand curves. So, so like with, with Giffen goods, this is a very popular debate um, in, uh, well, I'm not sure it's debated now, but it's, it's a fun one to have about the existence of Giffen goods. But they're possible in this mainstream approach, but they're not possible in the causal realist approach. I think Peter Klein has a paper on that. I encourage you to, to check that out about uh, Giffen goods. So because we just sort of arbitrarily assign a utility function, it means that it's possible to come up with one where the first derivative with respect to one of the goods being consumed is, uh, is positive. So we don't have diminishing marginal utility. There's also this aversion to allowing taste to change. And there's a paper by uh, Beck Becker and Stigler called Degusibus Nonis Disputandum. And uh, so that phrase usually means that, you know, there's no, we can't quarrel over, there's no arguing over taste. So because, you know, people's preferences are their preferences and subjective. One person likes one thing, another person likes another thing. There's no point in, di in disputing that or, or coming to a, an argument over that. However, they, they come to a different interpretation of that same quote. And it says that uh, our title seems to us to be capable, capable of, an, of another and preferable interpretation. That tastes neither change capriciously nor differ importantly between people. On this interpretation, one does not argue over taste for the same reason that one does not argue over the Rocky Mountains. Both are there, will be the next year too, and are the same for all men. So there's this aversion to allowing taste to change and also differ between people. So they want to be able to describe all human behavior for every single person using one big utility function. And the way they, they try to get at that is by by making utility functions about these abstract categories. So I have preferences for health and preferences for music in general, and then I consume specific goods to, to construct or, or produce these abstract categories that are inside my utility function. And so that's how they, they try to say that everybody has the same uh, utility function and also that it's time invariant. It's, uh, it's terrible. <laughs> Let's uh, uh, say a few things about mainstream macroeconomics. <clears throat> so in mainstream macro, some of the uh, big models that are still in use uh, today are aggregate supply and aggregate demand. Uh, just a brief overview here. So aggregate demand is downward sloping for totally different reasons than regular demand curves. So you have to have, uh, um, because regular demand curves are downward sloping because there's this homogeneous unit on the horizontal axis. However, in aggregate demand, we have all aggregate output here. And so we can't use diminishing margin utility as an explanation for a downward sloping aggregate demand curve. So they use the wealth effect. So as the price level decreases, people will consume more. There's the interest rate effect. As the price level decreases, people will increase their investment spending and an international trade effect. So if the domestic price level decreases compared to other countries, then people will uh, increase their exports and, and uh, decrease their imports. So all of those lead to an increase in aggregate demand with a, a change in the price level. For, uh, there's this distinction between short-run aggregate supply and, uh, and long-run aggregate supply. In the short run, they have price stickiness, specifically wage stickiness. And because of these sticky prices, there are, if there's a change in, in the price level, it's, it's not uniform, which means that there could be change to the real cost of production for producers. And so they could increase production if real wages decrease, if the price level increases. However, in the long run, all of those things are are taken out, so we don't have price stickiness in the long run, so that's why it's vertical. There's no change there. Uh, we also have uh, growth models like Solo. We can we can go fast through here. And the dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models, I, I thought it was funny. This is the image that the Fed, uh, the New York Fed chose 
to describe dynamic stochastic general equilibrium models. And I thought it was funny that they chose that. It's just a bunch of gibberish. So they're doing a good job of, of you know, refuting themselves. Uh, here's, here's another image I found for uh, the DSGE models. All of them are related to aggregate, aggregate demand. They try to explain phenomena in the macroeconomy by these, these shocks, exogenous shocks that come uh, from nowhere. They're really uh, deficient in that respect, so they never really explain where these shocks come from. It's just, you know, it comes from outside this, the, um, the system. The, these models and ideas are, are in contrast to the Austrian uh, macroeconomics, so we, can, we know that production exists in stages, and so we can, we can depict total expenditure for an economy using the structure of production. So here we have Bombavics, uh, Hayek's, and Rothbard's, and uh, in recent years we've, we've taken this and and engaged in either a precisive or non-precisive abstraction, depending on which Austrian economist you ask, and make, made a triangle out of that. And Roger Garrison is the one who is credited with taking it and turning it on its side. This is my homage to him with my moving PowerPoints. And so Garrison is the one who, who turned it on its side. Um, so we have a very rich capital theory. We know that you know, production starts with using labor and to get natural resources out of the ground to produce capital goods. And it goes through production with manufacturing, refining, transportation, all the way up to the retail end where the consumer purchases the final consumable output, which is on this uh, vertical dimension here. <clears throat> so ho hopefully uh, Roger Garrison talked about Austrian capital theory in his lecture, and you'll, you'll see some implications of this in his uh, business cycle talk. Um, in... Mainstream macroeconomics, there's some fraying at the top. So mainstream macroeconomics is in deep trouble. And the economists at the very top of, uh, of the academy and you know, at the very big organizations like the World Bank and, uh, and the big um, publishing institutions, they realize that there are some of, these, some of these deep errors. And so I can point out a couple quotes here. Let's... Uh, Look at Noah Smith here in the top left. So he says, there's no question that mainstream academic macroeconomics failed pretty spectacularly in 2008. It didn't just fail to predict the crisis. Most models, including Nobel Prize winning ones, didn't even admit the possibility of a crisis. The vast majority of theories didn't even include a financial sector. So they're, because, they, because of these, these precisive abstractions where they precisively exclude certain things from their theories, it means that there's... There, huge important things that are vacant from their models. And Noah Smith points out that there's a financial sector is missing from some of these models. Paul Romer wrote a great paper on mathiness in uh, macroeconomics, and he says that presenting a model is like doing a card trick. Everybody knows that there will be some sleight of hand. There is no intent to deceive because no one will take it seriously. Perhaps our norms will, be, will soon uh, be like those in professional magic. It will be impolite, perhaps even an ethical breach to reveal how someone's trick works. So <laughs> that's a, a great quote. And uh, let me see. You can look at, I've posted the slides, or I've given the slides to be posted on wherever they're centralized, so you can check out these quotes later. Uh, just, uh, let's look at one more. So Solo, who came up with the Solo Growth Model, said this about the DSGE models. He said, I do not think that the current, currently popular DSGE models pass the smell test. They take it for granted that a whole economy can be thought about as a single consistent person or dynasty, carrying out a rationally designed long-term plan, occasionally disturbed by unexpected shocks, but adapting to them in a rational, consistent way. 
The protagonists of this idea make a claim to respectability by asserting that it is founded on what we know about microeconomic behavior, but I think that this claim is generally phony. The advocates no doubt believe what they say, but they seem to have stopped sniffing or have lost their sense of smell altogether. So there's this, you see these top economists, these, these well-respected macroeconomists, they're all poking holes in each other's models and ideas. And, and so we can leave it to them to you know, you know, fight it out and hopefully nobody remains at the end of the, of the, big, of the big battle. <clears throat> uh, just let me uh, make a, a few comments about, oh, was I? Uh, yeah, you were oh, sorry. Here's the, uh, the quotes that I, that's the quote that I was just reading there. So let's uh, uh, make a few remarks about econometrics. So mainstream microeconomists and mainstream macroeconomists take their mathematical models and they rearrange them in a form that can be estimated by regression. It doesn't have to be linear, although this example that's, that's up here is a linear regression, but there are ways to do nonlinear regression. And so if there are problems with these models, it also extends to the econometrics using these flawed models. I hope that, that uh, is pretty obvious. <clears throat> so real-world data are plugged in and estimated parameters uh, come out, and specifically the, the, the intercept of some of plot of data and the, uh, um, the slope. So we have a bunch, of, a bunch of different data points here. For y and x, this would just be with two variables here. So like there could be a point here and here and here. They just pointed out one uh, actual piece of data here. And so if you have all of these data points, then you can find the line of best fit, the regression line. And you do so by minimizing the, the squared differences between that line and the actual data points. So they've got that here. So here's, you'd have to imagine a square here like that. And so that's what we're minimizing. So there are um, a number of uh, problems with this. I would recommend checking out the Hans Hoppe uh, essay that I pointed out at the beginning of the, of the lecture. If we have all of this data and we find some sort of statistical correlation, there's no reason to expect that that same correlation will exist for other time periods. There, and there's also no way to, to you know, pull out cause and effect from these equations like this. So it could be that the cause and effect goes in the exact opposite way. And we would get you know, a, just a different set of parameters, a different intercept and a different slope from our regression line. So we could replace all of the Y data with X data and vice versa, and we would just get a different line. So econometrics itself doesn't give you cause and effect. Using econometrics um, is, is okay, I think, in certain uh, circumstances. If you're doing economic history, there might be a, a case where you'd want to show the effect of, of, or the correlation of one variable and another variable. So this can be used and it's useful in certain uh, ways. However, we have to remember this Misesian distinction between theory and history or, or theory and thymology. So economic theory pertains to all choices ever made by anybody. The particulars of choices are not relevant, so we have these non-precisive abstractions. The specific motivations are, are not relevant, so the specific motivations of, of human actors doesn't matter for diminishing margin utility. We would have a downward sloping demand curve, whether or not somebody was angry when they went to the grocery store, or whether they were happy when they get to, went to the grocery store, whether or not the, the walls of the grocery store were green or were, they were red. So it doesn't matter these particulars, the things that exist only matter in as much as they affect real human actors' preferences. So that's, that's what matters. And that's how the particulars are, are taken into account. The uh, uh, 
Economic theory is not falsifiable by experience or observation. So if we come up with these ideas by logical deduction, there's no there's no experience that could invalidate that could that could falsify diminishing margin utility. It's the same idea. There, if you went around measuring uh, triangles, trying to invalidate the Pythagorean theorem, and you actually found one set of measurements that seems to falsify the Pythagorean theorem, which one would you toss out? Would you toss out your measurements or would you toss out the Pythagorean theorem? Or maybe you would check to make sure that the, the triangle that you were measuring was actually a right triangle, and so the Pythagorean theorem applies in that case. So there's that difference between theory and, and, and what we see in the real world. Uh, there are no constant relationships in human action, so this seems to be a big blow to econometrics that seeks to find this constant relationship, this mechanical relationship between one variable and another variable. Uh, so like, for example, in labor economics, we might want to see what the effect of an additional year of education is on somebody's uh, wages later in life. So there's no reason to assume that that sort of relationship would be the same between people and also for the same person across time. So because there's no constant relationships like that, we have to keep in mind that the results that we get from econometrics are, are very limited in terms of application. Some good examples of, of uh, economic theory you can find in human action and man economy and state. All of this is different from history or thymology where we apply the theory to the past. So obviously, what good would Austrian business cycle theory be if we couldn't actually take this theory, take these ideas, and look at historical episodes and, and analyze them in light of what we know from economic theory. So we can use economic theory and apply it to the, apply it to the past. We can't use observations that we find in the real world to, to possibly falsify economic theory. So there's a big difference there. Particulars can be identified. So we can make guesses about you know, what specific motivations people had in different time periods, different cultures. Um, all of this can be open to interpretation. So one person might say that, you know, uh, Americans are guided by greed. Another person might say that Americans are guided by generosity. And so we can guess about, you know, the specific motivations and, and, and we can, you know, debate all day. There's nothing that economic theory would be able to say about what's actually, was it greed or was it generosity that's guiding Americans? So something like that. However, there's still, there are still no constant relationships. And this is huge. There, this is, there are huge implications for econometrics because even though we're looking at the past, certain statistical correlations don't necessarily apply across all of, all of history, all of human history. So even though you know, people might have had one propensity to consume over you know, one 10-year span, in the previous 10-year span, they might have had a different propensity to consume measured in some certain way. So these... There, there are no constant mechanical relationships in human action. So using econometrics to look at the past has this, this big uh, caveat, this big flaw that you have to take into account. Some good examples of economic history are uh, America's Great Depression, uh, Crisis in Leviathan by Robert Higgs, and uh, my brother from another mother, Patrick, uh, recommended Antitrust and Monopoly by Dominic Armentano. So check those out if you're interested in, in economic history. Even though um, the mainstreamers hang their hat on, on prediction, they're not very good at it, as we saw from the Noah Smith um, quote. And Austrians seem to be pretty good at it. So even though we don't hang our hat on prediction, we're, we're, we're pretty good at it. And you can see this from uh, old interviews and Mises Wire articles from the past. So in 2002, Sean Corrigan was talking about you know, problems in, in the Freddie and Fannie. 
<clears throat> and uh, increases in, in mortgage debt. And Mark Thornton was, was also good about predicting the, the housing bubble um, even as early as 2004. So Mark Thornton said, given the government's encouragement of lax lending practices, home prices could crash, bankruptcies could would increase, and financial companies, including the government-sponsored mortgage companies, might require another taxpayer bailout. So because we have good theory, we're pretty good at not only interpreting the past and making sense of the past, but also interpreting and guessing and predicting the future. Now, even if we do make incorrect predictions, it doesn't mean that our theories are wrong, but it just means that because we have these good theories, uh, it means that we're better at doing this than, than the mainstream is. <clears throat> so um, I'm running out of time, so let me skip to the conclusions that we've drawn here. So the mainstream is not one coherent, unified body of thought. It's not even a group of economists who agree on how to answer economic questions. So mainstream economists find very specialized areas, labor, health, industrial organization, environmental economics, neuroeconomics is a word now, and who knows what that means or what they're doing in neuroeconomics. And there are no boundaries. So economists are, are increasingly getting into the area of psychology. So one way to approach a critique of mainstream economics is to say, no, you're doing economics wrong. Another way to approach it is that we're just two totally different sciences with two totally different goals, but we just use a lot of the similar, a lot of the same uh, vocabulary. <clears throat> so Mises and Rothbard, in contrast, present a unified systematic science of economics. So we have one big body of economics and it's all interrelated and interconnected. It's, it's uh, pedagogically very systematic. So we start with human action, we get to diminishing margin utility, we can get to comparative advantage and uh, law of association and business cycle theory and, and on and on. And all of it's related to itself and dependent on itself. However, in the mainstream, uh, there's a lot of contradictions and a lot of things that aren't relevant. So things that are uh, derived or, or conclusions that are derived in one field in microeconomics don't even apply or, or, or are contradicted in macroeconomics. Austrian economists are very careful to stay inside the boundaries of economics, so we know what we can say and what we can't say. The differences between the Austrian school and the mainstream begin at the most fundamental level, so we have logic and understanding. We use logic so that we can gain an understanding, whereas in the mainstream they're using empiricism, positivism to, to be able to predict human behavior, so there's big differences there. The Austrian approach is focused on, on understanding real-world cause and effect, and the mainstream it tries to predict human behavior and macro-level phenomena using mathematical models. So with all of that in mind, I hope uh, I've convinced you that one of these methods is a lot better than the other. So thank you so much for your attention.